not only do our own contexts shape the short-term tactical decisions that we make, not only is it convenient for us as technologists to just claim we're producing these, these tools as if they were manna from heaven, when these things get implemented in particular cultural and social contexts, they'll have dramatically different uh, impacts. And I think that's an important message. You're listening to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast. Welcome, everyone. On today's podcast, I have good friend Azim Azar, uh, who has written an amazing book um, on exponential technologies. Welcome, Azim. Carlos, it's great to be back on the podcast. Thank you. Now, the reason why I was so excited to have you back on um, for your book is because, frankly, it is one of the most eye-opening books I've read in a long time. Um, I've read books about science fiction that are eye-opening in one way, because they propose future world, and that future world almost looks dystopian in some cases. Your book tells the truth. It's a truth that's all, all around us, uh, mm. and, and it's affecting our lives. But it's like that parable of the frog that is boiled slowly and it just doesn't know to jump out of the boiling water. That's right. what, when I was reading your book, that's how it felt. I was like, shit, this is all true. This is all true. Um, so before we get into your book, um, let's talk a little bit about your background, just so that anybody who's not familiar with who you are, I mean, you're multi, multi-times entrepreneur, you're an investor, you're a writer, podcaster, but maybe just give a, a quick run through of, of what you've achieved in your life today before well, writing this amazing book. No, th- thank you so much. And thank you for the, the really kind words. Um, I, I think in a, in a funny sort of way, uh, I haven't fallen that far from the, the original tree. So I was born in, uh, in 1972, and it was the year after Intel released the 4004 microprocessor, which is sort of heralded as a real milestone in the development of the, of the tech industry. Uh, and through my childhood, two continents away uh, in, in the, you know, in, in the US, Apple and Microsoft and the Altair 8800 were coming to, to, to being, into fruition. Um, and at the same time where I was, I was born uh, in Zambia, where my dad was working for an economic development uh, organization, helping a newly independent Zambia develop the types of institutions that well-run countries have. And so there was a connection to this idea of institutions and, and economics. And those two areas, computers and the the wonderful nerdiness that goes with it and economic institutions have stuck with me um, throughout my my life. And and I didn't realize this until I was in my my 30s thinking, gosh, I keep going back to those two things in equal measure. So as a a founder and as a journalist and as an investor, um, most recently, uh, my last company was called Peer Index. Um, It was acquired by by Brandwatch. It was in the, the big data space. Um, and I have been lucky enough to invest. I invested in uh, the very first seed camp uh, fund. Uh, and I do wish I had invested in some of the later ones, of course, because uh, quite rarely you've done better and better and better as you, you've gone off. And I've been so proud to watch that, that journey. Um, and, and so today I really spend my time um, largely and uh, in, increasingly investing in early stage companies um, looking at uh, deep technology, the intersection with machine learning and biology and climate change um, and, and some other areas, uh, produce a newsletter, Exponential View and the podcast. And we have a community now that helps us uh, around that. And 
Of course, we've just published uh, the, my first book, which is called Exponential uh, uh, Alongside. Um, but the whole idea knits back together to those first days back in Zambia in 1972, which is that there's a range of very, very fast changing technologies that are dramatically changing the world. And I explain why in the book and the way in which they're changing it is putting a lot of strain on our socio, social, economic and political uh, institutions. Yeah, uh, that's a you know that's a very good way to tee up the the way that I've interpreted your book, and I was I was sharing with this with you uh, before we started uh, recording. But when I read your book, I, it felt like a um, there was a natural divide between uh, the first few chapters, uh, the first four chapters or so, who, who who like really painted what led to today. And one of the interesting things about those four chapters is that. One key thought, which I kind of knew in the background, but I I just kind of worth highlighting for those that haven't really reflected on it, is that even though we have technologies that can be used uh, for good or for bad, um, and that a lot of these technologies like computers, mobile technologies, 5G and all that stuff um, can be used for good or for bad, there's Mm -hmm. one fundamental principle that makes them more complicated than just being neutral uh, objects of utility is that they were designed for specific groups of people by specific groups of people, which means that they're not as quite as neutral as we think they are, right? Um, I was speaking with a founder who makes um, a insurance, machine learning insurance risk assessment uh, product. And one of the problems that he highlighted was that a lot of the data, for example, about historic driving risk is mostly male drivers because the some of the historic data uh, leading through the you know 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, the predominant uh, gender for drivers was was male, and so mm-hmm. he was like, "This is negatively skewed towards one group," and so any kind of semblance of like smartness coming out from a, a data analysis is wrong, fundamentally wrong. And mm-hmm. so your your first few chapters talk about how even though we think this stuff is benevolent, there's actually a lot of not malevolence, but lots of ignorance built into yeah. it, but maybe you want to rip on that. I think, yeah, there's some, there's some embedded assumptions uh, that, are, that sit within these, uh, the development of these uh, technologies. And, and sometimes they are, as your, your colleague pointed out, they relate to you know, historical data that might not be relevant. They also relate to uh, trade-offs that product managers have to, have to make. I mean, we forget that uh, when you're producing a, a, a technology, you've got a deadline to hit and you've got a limited amount of resources and the founder is breathing down your neck. And you're going to sit there and you're going to say, which shortcut do I take in order to ship? Always be shipping. You learn by shipping. And and the, the to- choice of the shortcut that you might make, a very, very tactical decision, will often be baked into your own experience or the, the, the things that the people around you think are important. And so they're, they're in, in itself, there's a there's, there's a question. We've seen this historically um, in, in other ways. I mean, we know, for example, that um, traditionally offices, which for those um, of us who've been uh, isolating and working remotely for two years, are big buildings that people used to have to go to to work. Um, offices uh, were often too cold for women because the design and the planning of air conditioning um, was sort of regulated against the man's body temperature, which tends to be slightly higher uh, than uh, a woman's just because of our of our physical size. Uh, and so 
you, you, and you see that with seatbelts, where seatbelts were initially designed and safety tested on dummies that had a kind of male weight and a male skeletal uh, frame. And so they didn't work well with, with women. But this idea that technologies are not, uh, are, are not neutral, they're neither good nor bad, um, is a really, really uh, important one. Because if you're, if you're coming out of um, a, a world where you build technology and you make money from technology, and that's predominantly been Silicon Valley for the last 40 or 50 years, it's much better to, for you to go out and say, look, this is a neutral tool. How it gets used is up to the user, because then you don't have to worry about those downstream uses and miss out. You can just say, well, it was a dumb user, right? Guns don't pe kill people. People kill people. Um, and so it's very, very convenient because it means there's a whole set of questions you don't need to then think about. But I think we, we know that the impact of technologies in any context can really be very, very variable. And I'll give you one example, which is, which is gig working platforms. So if you think about gig working platforms, which I, I'm, I know that, uh, you know, Seedcamp must have uh, sort of investments and interest in as well. Um, in, in countries with established and formalized labor markets, a gig working platform that replaces a contracted salaried job with parcels of work that you pick up on at 11 on a morning and then at, at 2 p.m. in the afternoon creates flexibility, but it also creates insecurity. And it looks like you are reducing the amount of um, formalism and for, uh, of the economy and reducing the certainty and security that a worker has. The self-same set of code run by similar people operating in a market with incredibly informal labor markets like India or Nigeria, where people might largely be day laborers showing up somewhere, seeing if there's any work to be had, a little bit like the stevedores on the, the dock in West Side Story. Um, the, the arrival of a gig working platform actually formalizes the market the labor market and provides more certainty for the workers. It's exactly the same product with really, really, exact, pardon me, it's exactly the same product brought to market by very similar people with similar intentions and dramatically different impacts. So I think that that's a really important thing to also recognize that not only do our own contexts shape the short term tactical decisions that we make, not only is it convenient for us as technologists to just claim we're producing these, these tools as if they were manna from heaven. And, but also that when these things get implemented in particular cultural and social contexts, they'll have dramatically different uh, impacts. And I think that's an important message. Yeah, that's, that's a very important message. And really the key element of that, what I would say the second half of the book uh, is, and, and you know, the, the chapters that uh, start with the title Labor's Lost Love and end with Abundance and Equity, these chapters are really eye-opening. I mean, I, I, I shared this with you earlier. I think as I read the book, it, it was, it was um, very interesting to reflect on the impact that we all collectively are feeling, but also that we need to take action about. You know, there's environmental challenges that I think we're all collectively taking action on. But then there is sociological impacts and uh, political impacts that we need to take impact on. And I think the way you've woven them together is very, very succinct and, and very helpful. And I'm just going to read um, a little snippet from your, your last chapter that kind of, I think, does a good job of tying all these concepts together. And then we'll unpack it. 
But technology alone is not enough. Without the right governance, they will they may still lead us down the road of overconsumption, environmental catastrophe. The second issue is that technology is destabilizing. At these exponential rates of improvement and deployment, technological innovation challenges well-established systems. As we've seen time and time again in this book, technology has an earth-shattering effect on our social, economic, and political institutions. New companies force old ones out. The relationship between workers and employees is transformed. Economic cooperation gives way to localized production. And the effects of this destabilization are usually borne by those who can least afford them. Smaller, more vulnerable, and low-tech companies are the ones that go bust. Workers with low levels of education find themselves thrown into exploitative gig work. The localization of supply chains is ruinous for the economies of the developing world. The negative effects of the exponential age are never evenly distributed. The third concern is the dramatic shift in the locus of power that exponential technologies bring out. These technologies have led to the creation of superstar companies, and these firms have capabilities that even governments need to rely on. Such companies increasingly dominate aspects of society we never thought of as a province of firms. That's a good a good place to stop because actually it really does capture quite a book of of the points that you make in the last few chapters. And before yeah. before we we kind of cover them, I, I want to caveat the readers. This is not a book about a dystopian future. It's not a book where it sounds a little bit when I was reading, I was like, shit, how do I end it on a high note so that Azim doesn't kill me, right? It's it's not a dystopian book. But it has some dystopian outcomes if we don't step in. But maybe you want to. Um, maybe let's. We, we talked a little bit about te- technology. Maybe let's talk a little bit about some of these. Um, Carlos, if I may, before you yeah. do, because I, I was looking down uh, to, to my copy of the book uh, over here because I know that the start of the next section, which you don't quite get to in your reading of the extract, is this. <laughs> But this dystopian world is not inevitable. Uh, It is easy when faced with transformative technologies to become deterministic. Skip ahead, yet technology doesn't determine how it develops. We do. And then I give some insights as to how we close those gaps and how we uh, tackle those those risks that, um, that, that emerge. And I think that you're right in saying this isn't a, a dystopian book. What I what I tried to do was to to, to the best that I can um, explain the underlying technological processes. Right? What are these processes that allow us to make bold claims that say technology is accelerating? In other words, it's getting faster and faster. And I think I, I make that. That, that claim and I, I, I back it up. It's a really trivial and easy thing to say and stick on a PowerPoint slide and kind of get people excited. But we have to, we have to explain those underlying processes because once we under, understand the underlying processes, I think we can then start to see how the um, conclusions play out, right? So how do I go from um, the m- miniaturization that led to Moore's law and the doubling of computing power uh, every uh, couple of years or so through to labor markets in India becoming more formalized with gig working, right? So we start at one point and we get up to the other. And the reason I do it that way is because I felt that in the discussion that is going on about um, technology and its role in society, uh, 
many times people are talking about the symptoms without understanding not just the cause, but the causative processes that get us to these effects that we consider symptoms. Uh, and yeah. I think that's really, really important. And it means that in, in some areas, I'm trying to move away from the idea of um, bad actors within the technology arena, although there are you know, many unpleasant people working in this industry, just as there are very, very, very many amazing, committed and just brilliant and fun people working in the industry, as there are in all industries, yeah. and through to an understanding of the processes that, that get us there. And I yeah. think there is a path to a slightly ugly dystopian future, some of which I, I paint in the book, if we continually focus on uh, on on the symptomatic expression and tackling those symptoms rather than understanding that because the the ways in which these systems work we need to have some new rules about how they operate and set some new expectations so maybe what we can do is um we'll go through some of these um and then we can maybe conclude with some of those ideas and, and what we should be doing so is that some like yeah, a good yeah plan? absolutely so i, I want to start with one anecdote which you do bring up in, in your book, um, but I'm going to expand on that. And it has okay. to do with, with the electrical car and a, a distributed grid, reverse distributed grid. Right. Um, and, and the reason why I want to pick that anecdote is because I think it's an anecdote that I think can um, cover quite a bit of the flow of all these chapters. So um, when you look at what transport, personal transport has done to transform society, it's, it's massive, right? Like the... Mm. Internal combustion engine affordable to the every person has been uh, transformative in not only being able to get you to the hospital in time for, you know, somebody giving birth to uh, being able to take holidays locally. Um, and it, a negative impact of that, which is kind of what you were alluding to, is that technologies come with benefits, but then the negative impact has been, you know, largely environmental and uh, also in terms of commodities and having centralized locations for manufacturing and import and export related environmental impact. And then of course, left uncontrolled, we would have most of a country just being highways and uh, you know, like uh, gas pipes coming out from cars straight into the environment, right? And so what, what you bring, the example you bring up in the book is as we all migrate towards electric, perhaps there's an opportunity for us to have distributed electric cars working as storage facilities for energy, for battery, and then having those power homes uh -huh. and transforming a negative exponential trajectory into a positive one. And yeah. how regulation, like in the case of the UK with ultra low emission standards and all these things, is forcing that curve from going in one direction into another. And I, and I, and I think your book covers that across everything from labor markets to manufacturing to local to uh -huh. and so what i wanted to do is go through each one of the different chapters and little anecdotes that you bring up and mm. and cover how those those exponential uh, trajectories that are headed towards a dystopian future if not controlled what are the right. points that you're you're bringing that will then help control those to have an outcome that will benefit into a world of abundance and equity so let's start with the labor argument um right and you know we, we talk a little bit about gig workers we talk a little bit about um uh, you didn't explicitly bring it up but um one of our companies uipath um you did mention in the chapter you know talking about uh, robotics but talk us about 
kind of the, the problem with the exponential trajectory of labor and maybe the, the potential correction that we need there. Yeah, absolutely. And I do talk about UiPath. I want to just share a brief anecdote about UiPath. So um, uh, it, yeah, it's an amazing seed camp company uh, in this uh, robotic process automation space. And when I wrote the, um, the, pro the uh, proposal for the book, uh, UiPath was an incredibly fast growing company valued at a billion dollars. By the time I finished the first draft, it was valued at seven. Uh, I had to change that number. By the time I got the comments back on the first draft, that number had gone up to 10. And just as we were about to go to press, UiPath IPO'd at $35 billion, a truly exponential uh, uh, trajectory. And I had, we had to call the editor and go, I hope those presses haven't started because I need to go in and change this number to 35 billion. So congratulations to Daniel at UiPath. You've done an amazing job and built a great company, but you really caused a lot of hassle and headache uh, for me. So you owe me at least uh, a decent uh, coffee uh, for all of that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think when we look at uh, the, the future of work question, um, you know, the, the obvious uh, starting point here is that, that people have talked about this rise of the robots narrative and the robot jog, job apocalypse, that robots will come in, they'll take all the jobs, um, and people will have no work uh, to, to, to get to. And, and my argument is that, in a sense, that that is a that, that that's a, a fallacy um, for a number, even though it's very very appealing for a number of reasons. Um, that the idea that there's only so much work to go around and that economies don't create new styles of work um, is a really hard one to 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 evidence and, and and prove. That in general, economies have always created new classes of jobs like venture capitalist and social media analyst and Reiki healer. Uh, and so, uh, so, so we can expect that to, to start to continue. But the second is that even six or seven years out from um, the, 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 the rise of these companies, which is often long enough to see an impact, we're actually not seeing declining levels of employment. And, and one of my stories that I, that I bring up in, in the book is um, how uh, Jeff Hinton, who's one of the fathers of the, um, the deep learning theory, in fact, sold the first deep learning company, um, you know, really very, very early on, um, was talking at the uh, Creative Destruction Lab in, in Toronto, which is this amazing incubation program. And um, he he talks in I think it's 2015 about machine vision and how quickly it's it's um, progressing and he says that um, we should stop hiring radiologists you know if your kids are going to become radiologists um, you should tell them not not to do it the point being that that machine vision was going to get better and better and it would be able to to read uh, X-ray scans more effectively than any human can. And we've seen that happen with machine vision, right, in insurance and in, in, in radiology as well. But the thing that has actually happened um, in the US is that in the decade after the, from just before the deep learning wave started in 2010 through to 2019, the number of radiologists didn't in fact decline. It increased significantly. And so too did the shortage of radiologists because the issue, the gating factor was our ability to train radiologists, not the number of people who needed x-rays. And so what we've actually seen is that these tools have come in and made radiologists more effective. They've given them more time, but the market need has, has still existed and has grown. 
So I think it's easy to fall into this idea that that jobs get replaced immediately. And yet, before we went into the coronavirus pandemic, in virtually every country in the world had um, record levels of employment and very, very low levels of, of unemployment. And then coronavirus shows up and it tells us something really interesting, which is that the companies that had most heavily invested in robots and machine learning hired the most people. Amazon, a million people pretty much in 2020. Netflix, huge numbers of people hired. JD.com, the Chinese retailer that in 2018 showed off a robot, robotized workforce, a, a warehouse where four, robot, uh, four people could handle 200,000 packages a day. Well, JD.com, uh, between 2016 and 2020, added about 20 to 25% employees every year, despite this heavy investment in, in robotics. And as a consequence of the pandemic, the companies that went out of business were the ones that didn't have robots. Uh, and I think that's what the longer term data, looking at many different sectors, starts to show that, in a sense, um, you know, robots are do cost jobs, but not in the way you think. Companies that have very, very good management tend to be forward looking. So they tend to make investments in complex technologies like AI and robotics, and then the people investments that are required to manage those new technologies. So they're better run companies. Yeah. And so they outcompete the companies that are less well run, who therefore have also got lower, uh, lower investments in, ro- in robots. So the yeah. issue is not so much that a robot takes your job, it's that the poor managers of your business are unable to make the correct technology investments and get outcompeted and your company, your employer goes out of, out of business. So that's one of the mechanisms that's, that, that's quite important. The second mechanism is that what is actually the na- changing nature and the shift of work? I talked earlier about how we were at record levels of employment around the globe. But what counts as employment has really shifted. It's gone from this idea of a 40-hour week and a salary job with a bunch of benefits, it, increasingly to large portions of people on zero-hours contracts in the UK, which is a kind of gig-working-style method, where, you're, where you even have to stop charging your employer when you go for a pee. Um, and, and that means there's a quality of work shift has emerged. So I, I make the point that actually the, sh- the, the technology shift is one which, on the one hand, creates a lot of competitive dynamism, which will mean, mean firms will fail, leaving workers out of a job. But the second is that the changing nature of algorithmic management um, weakens the quality of work that workers can get. So the issue is not about quantity of jobs, it's actually about uh, the quality of jobs that are available and the relative power that a worker has to their employer. Uh, and, and one of the ways of looking at that relative power is, is a macroeconomic indicator called the labor share of income. Of the total income created in, in an economy, what share goes to, to capital and what share goes to labor? And as we've started to see increasing use of technologies and IT in our economies over the last 20 or 30 years, that has been one of the primary drivers of a shift of national income away from workers and to uh, capital, the providers of capital. Yeah. So those are the issues that we have to that tackle that emerge yeah. from these exponential trends. Yeah, I, the way that I, I, I kind of summarize that 
when I read it was that we're we're going to continue to have these high demands for employment, but the division uh, between high skilled and low skilled workers is going to get even more exa- uh, exacerbated, and anything that falls in the middle will probably not exist in that local geography, and yeah. and and it's and it's. Uh, transport to another geography might actually be at risk as well if that geography doesn't have other means by production. Which brings me to the two other chapters, which I think we can kind of maybe merge a little bit, which is this trend towards, you, you call, the chapter is called The World is Spiky, but it's this trend towards like localization at the same time of uh, the new world disorder, which is maybe the, the rise of how uh, conflict is is being dealt with and and the nature of um, mm-hmm. nation states and yeah. local geography. So maybe we can, we talk about those two subjects of, of how there's this, this, this decline in globalization as the old way, which you talk about this, this old model of globalization is changing. And there's a really cool anecdote that you talk about um, at the very beginning of the chapter about how a car company um, actually didn't have to ship anything. I don't want to spoil it for, in case you want to use that <laughs> anecdote, but you know, maybe let's talk, two chapters um yeah. how the impact uh, has yeah absolutely and funny that you know just to talk about my the pattern of act the art of actually writing this those two chapters were one chapter uh, at the very beginning of, of writing the process and then i split them out to to deal with trade on one hand and, and conflict mm-hmm. on the other so if you imagine where where we were and, and you know afghanistan has just fallen to the taliban so we feel quite far away from that uh now but where we we were four or five years ago was this idea that um, there was a rules-based order of globalization, that if we all adapted, adopted the same rules around intellectual property and free trade and so on, we would establish this amazing friction-free global economy that would allow everyone to do, uh, to do better. And my, one of my, my arguments, and we know that that, that that idea has started to lose its luster, but that the technologies themselves create a lot of spikiness in that otherwise flat world. Um, And on on the side of of trade, the reason and production, the reason is largely that there are these breakthrough uh, technologies that allow us to think about things more locally, and they change the the, the locality of power. And I'll just give give one example, uh, which is in... um, electricity generation and in energy. So for much of the 20th century, that involved shipping large amounts of coal or natural gas or oil around from one place to to another. And that articulated the nature of our geopolitics. You know, the the reason the US kept a, a permanent presence in the Persian Gulf was not to give the sailors on its aircraft carriers suntans. It was to keep the Straits of Hormuz open and keep that lovely oil flowing. And the funny thing about oil is that oil is really, really um, unequally distributed around the world. The country with the most oil has a million times more oil per square kilometer than the country with the least oil. And out of that, we constructed a sort of geopolitical framework. Now, as we make a shift towards renewables, um, things start to change because I now no longer need to ship uh, massive uh, uh, freighters of of, uh, liquefied natural gas from one part of the world to the next. The sun and the wind blows where it does, and I can pipe it reasonably far using high voltage direct current um, uh, cables. Now, the thing about 
at global insulation, which is the rate with which sun, solar energy lands on the planet, is that it's much more equitably distributed. And in fact, the, the most solar-rich nation, which is Azerbaijan, subject of a, a recent conflict that I talk about in the next chapter, only gets four times more sunlight per square mile of land than the most impoverished, which is Norway. And so the gap between the haves and haves-nots is, 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 is minor in there. Now, the thing about solar and wind and, and other types of renewable energy is that they can not only do they, do they not require this sort of strange geography, they also allow both very, very large-scale deployments. Let's think about the Hornsey offshore wind farms, but the local decentralized deployments, so community solar and rooftop solar. And in somewhere like South Australia, rooftop solar is... Uh, going to be the driver of decarbonizing the South Australian power grid, even though the, the, the government is, is still rather supportive of fossil fuels over there. So individual people making individual decisions can start to take control of the shape of the, of the energy policy. And when you throw in the idea that every single car, a typical electric car has 40 kilowatt hours to 80 kilowatt hours of storage, which is enough to run a British home for, for several days. It means that you have a grid of batteries sitting on people's driveways or on their pavements that can be used for, to solve some part of the intermittency problem. Now, I've painted a very sort of direct, very strongly hued picture of what that kind of spikiness, relocalization means. It means you don't need to spend a billion dollars building a new coal plant. You don't need to ship millions of tons of coals into your coal into your country every year. That we, we construct this alternative and that changes the geography of power. It changes the logic of sending your soldiers to die to keep a flow of oil or, or you know, natural gas um, uh, you know, uh, threats uh, across the pipeline across Europe. So that that's one fundamental change on the on the side of trade, but a similar thing starts to happen on the side of of conflict. So conflict, we started to think of, um, you know, as, as things that that large nations can do so much better than others, and they had to take real risks. And I think of the example of Israel, which has faced uh, the threat of, of of rival powers developing nuclear weapons, and in 1981, that rival power was Iraq. And the Israelis, with the help, believe it or not, of the Iranians, um, launched an incredibly high-risk attack, which I describe in the book, to bomb um, Iraq's nuclear reactors at Osirak. Um, and, uh, and they went off and did that, and the flight of planes did it quite successfully. Uh, and 35 years later, Israel faced another threat where the neighbor was developing nuclear weapons. In this case, it was Iran, their previous ally. And this time, they disabled Iran's nuclear capabilities using Stuxnet, which was a virus or a worm, which went in, targeted the Siemens microcontrollers that ran the centrifuges in the Natanz um, research area and got them to spin wrongly and do physical damage. And that was the etherealization of conflict. You could use this thing called Stuxnet to go off and do something where you had to previously put planes and pilots at risk. But those new technologies, whether it is um, viruses, whether it is drones, whether it is disinformation bot networks, are unlike main major aircraft, 
subject to the forces of exponential technology change. They're getting cheaper, and that means more people can get involved in them. And that means that you get this pattern of much, much larger types of digital conflagrations. And we've seen with solar winds in the US and, and other things, the, the rate with which the attack, this new digital attack surface is being penetrated by all types of actors. And it's not necessarily your adversary's military. It might be some, some hired gang of shadow criminals uh, or just people doing it for profit. Yeah. Actually, what, what I, this, these two chapters, this, this is where I, I, I had most um, moments of like, okay, w- there's investments that are being made today that right. will enable this to happen. Everything yeah. from distributed sourcing of goods for local production to 3D printing to um, government, uh, local government tools and SaaS mm-hmm. products for local government to cryptocurrencies to help finance local uh, in- incentives all around the world, regardless of uh, um, a government-controlled currency to everything from cybersecurity, defense systems at the local level, and and this is probably it, it doesn't come as a surprise that that's probably where the bulk of investments are coming now is because there are these interesting trends. And so I'm curious uh, on your end, what what are the areas that you're as an investor putting your investor hat on? What are the areas that you're most interested in investing right now? Uh, in light of some of these these changes, what what are the things that you would encourage founders to think of in terms of new companies being started to capitalize on these trends? Yeah, well, you, you know, um, you're absolutely right. It's replete with uh, with opportunity, um, and it, it, the thing that I love about founders is founders are the ones who tell me where the opportunities are, because for me, founders are the ones who are really attuned to the the trends in amongst customers, whether it's businesses or, or, or consumers, and where a technology is just mature enough. And they are that bridge between those, those emergent and unarticulated needs and a technology that isn't quite right. And I rely on the founders to tell me um, what, what's going on more than anything else, because they're the ones who, who do it. Um, you know, and, and I, but I am looking in uh, in those types of areas, the the fact that there is um, a lot of decentralization going on means that there needs to be some governance of those of those resources. Whether it is virtual power plants made up of smart uh, smart car batteries, um, or, or whether it is uh, you know people thinking about their local economy uh, in some sense, I, I'm also looking uh, extensively at the intersection of in, of exponential technology. So for me. Uh, computing and uh, and machine learning form a, fa- a foundational part, and when you overlap them with the breakthroughs in uh, protein engineering or in genomics, you start to create really really uh, interesting uh, opportunities. So spaces like um, cellular agriculture or uh, plant based protein, or finding biomanufacturing methods to create the um, many of the materials or replacement materials that we need in our modern economies, uh, those things are super, super um, I- interesting. And likewise, when we look at the, um, you know, the, the, the space of, um, of cyber threats and risk and how we start to manage those, those risks, um, that that isn't going away, and there are going to be real questions as we move towards a, a sort of an IoT world about how do we manage 
these 10 billion, 50 billion, 100 billion, soon trillion devices that are around the planet? How do we manage their reliability? How do we manage their updates? Um, how do you patch them for vulnerabilities? Um, every, every investor always says now is the best time to start a company. I've been, I've been following startups since 1994, and I've never heard an investor saying this is a shitty time to start a company, right? It's always the best time to start the company. But what I would say, taking a long duration view out of history, is that this is genuinely a really good time to start because we are at a turning point, a turning point that we didn't see historically previously since 1895 to about 1920, when the world went from being gas lamps and horses and messenger pigeons to cars, telephones and electricity. And when Seed Camp was founded in 2008, the world's largest companies were all built around those technologies of the telephone, the car, oil, and electricity, General Electric, ExxonMobil, AT&T. You can just look at the world's biggest companies. Now the world's biggest companies are built on largely one, one exponential technology, the computing platform. But over the next 10 years, new huge companies will emerge across the intersection of these and other platforms. And we'll look back mid-century, mid-21st century, and we won't really remember what General Motors was or what Exxon was. We, instead, we'll be looking at companies built on these exponential technology platforms. And the founders that you, you are backing uh, it's so reliably, uh, Carlos, at Seedcamp, and I hope to sort of do similarly myself, um, will be the ones building those, those generational businesses. Yeah, and, and you know, one of maybe the last question I have down that path is that your last company, Peer Index, had um, some elements of it that you talk a little bit about in the Exponential Citizens chapter, where as these companies grow and as investments we make, investments you make, investments a lot of current investors make, as they grow both in capability in like, let's say, gathering data sets about cyber threats or gathering data sets about uh, plant types or about people like Peer Index did about people and, and their influence. Mm -hmm. What what modifications need to happen really to not not only enable local uh, production and 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 uh, privacy of that data, but also sharing so that it's more uh, mm. you know there's going to be people of ethnic backgrounds and, and gender and racial backgrounds uh, globally distributed because of immigration, and those data sets need to be shared for the for it to be super inclusive. But mm -hmm. you know you have these issues of of national defense and and. Uh, data management like HIPAA and, and you know, German and US laws on data management. Maybe just play with that idea, uh, in particular with your peer index hat on mm. and say like, what, what regulation do you think should have existed for, for peer index or, or maybe what regulation needs to exist for this not to become something that is so controlled that it can't blossom to mm. benefit from scale, but so open that it, it creates the dystopian future that you mentioned. Yeah, it's, it's such a great question. And with, with Peer Index, where we essentially, you know, indexed and analyzed 400 million people's public social media profiles. Oh, pardon me, not 400 million. Yes, it was 400 million. Yeah, 400 million people's public social media profiles. Um, you know, we, we, we asked a lot of these questions of ourselves, but there wasn't really a framework and our impact wasn't so big that it was societal. But I think the way we have to look at, look at this is that there is a new set of, um, a new domain that is emerging, which is this sort of data domain um, that didn't really exist 
30, 50, 100 years ago when laws and habits were around this uh, occurred. And the question is, should that domain be a private space that is owned by a company for, for, for exploitation or should it be a public space or should it be something else? Now, if, if you think about the air that you breathe, you're, the air that you breathe is a public space. The idea that, that Amazon or Apple might own that and meter it is a sort of realm of really dystopian science fiction. So the question is, why? What, what should, how should we think about that common space that emerges from our data trails? And what, to what extent should that be owned by the companies whose technologies enable it? To what extent should that be seen as a common benefit that we should all uh, take advantage of? And I argue in the book that we need to have much more of that commons-based thinking in order to secure the benefits of being able to aggregate data um, that the technology now allows, because that will give us the confidence that this data is being worked used for our mutual benefit. And there are, I didn't go into the detail of the legal mechanisms that you can use to do this, but you can build, you know, trust and foundation-like um, asp- uh, entities that can steward our data on our behalf. And there is still room for very successful, profitable companies to live on top of that. And the, 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 the evidence proof of that is that the protocols of the internet are in the public domain and trillions of dollars of value has been created uh, on top of that. So I think it's absolutely um, uh, uh, possible uh, to both steward and protect our data for our benefit and, and, and common good and still have the, um, the relentless and powerful engine of creative entre- entrepreneurialism running alongside that. But we just don't have that balance right today. Yeah. Well, with that, Azim, um, I don't want to give away much more about the book. It is absolutely amazing, guys. If you're listening to this, put it on your Amazon basket. I think it's in it's coming out September 7th, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, put it in your Amazon basket today as a pre-order. If you're an investor, you're literally going to make bad investments unless you read this or so read it. Uh, highly recommend it. Uh, thanks for joining us, Azeem. People can follow you on, um, remind me of the domain. Uh, it's exponentialview.co. Yeah, exponentialview.co or at Azeem on Twitter, which is A-Z-E-E-M if you're in America and A-Z-E-E-M if you're anywhere else. Great. and. Uh, subscribe to Azim's newsletter. It's absolutely amazing. So with that, Azim, thank you so much for the the wisdom and for creating this amazing book that is going to be eye-opening for for technologists and politicians alike. Thanks so much, Thomas. My pleasure. Bye-bye.